Before we go into the service, we have a special prayer request, and it comes from our missionary, uh, David Chang, in uh, Bangkok. And so uh, we want to remember the great uh, country of Thailand now at this time. You know that uh, there's great unrest, and it's becoming very violent, and there's been loss of life and property, of course, and other things. And so uh, he asked that we pray, uh, especially today, because in parts of the country there will be elections others are being held up and so there's just a, a lot of unrest right now and there's a lot of uncertainty and so uh, let's bow our heads together and pray for the great people of thailand father as we come to before thee we know lord that you have a will and a plan for all the nations and father that you rule sovereignly throughout the world and all the affairs of men are under your control And so, Lord, we beseech you now at this time on behalf of the people of Thailand. And we know, Lord, that many people have very strong feelings and there are many people who are confused and there are people who are hurt or people who are scared. And, Lord, we pray that this time that you would come upon the people of Thailand, upon the church of Thailand, that it will be a source of stability and peace and hope. We pray, Father, that this will be successfully resolved however way that uh, you choose. But we pray, Lord, that there would be a sub- the ceasing of the violence. And, Father, that uh, people may be able to come together and resolve their differences. And so, Lord, we thank you again for people like David and Gladys who, and their children, Lord, who have given their lives uh, to, uh, to bring the gospel to this great country. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless them at this time and bless them with a confidence and a peace and a rest that I'm sure that many people in Thailand are seeking for. And we ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, speaking about doing things for God, you can do them over there, you can do them here. And so we know that uh, God's work is important and He wants all of us who know Him to be involved in it. Uh, When I was younger, much younger, uh, when the crust on the earth was still cooling... I was uh, I was involved in sports uh, a little bit, and uh, I used to hear this statement. And the statement went something like this: "They didn't beat us; we beat ourselves." You know, and everybody would get all upset and riled up in the locker room and things like that. And uh, the teams that say this are admitting that their defeat was not so much the other team doing more things right, but they themselves did more things wrong. You see, because you can defeat yourself. Uh, For example, a team can defeat itself if its players are selfish. All right. And so uh, in America, we have uh, sometimes come across different stars and it's all about them. It's all about them, you know, and 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 they're the centerpiece. They're the center of the universe. And and nothing that anybody else has to do with the team really matters compared to them. And so they become very selfish. Individual team members, are they begin to look out more for their own welfare instead of the welfare of the team as a whole. And if that happens, if that happens, then the team falls apart. The team is no longer a team, okay? As someone said and reminded us often, there's no I in the word team, you see? And so, but nevertheless, a team can defeat itself if the, if the, if the members uh, become selfish. Now, churches can beat themselves too. Uh, there, Satan knows that a church can beat itself with internal strife and fighting, okay? He knows that, and he uses that all the time. 
And if he can get you and I to be fighting with each other, we're not fighting him. <laughs> if we're fighting each other, we're not fighting sin. <laughs> we're fighting each other, you see. And so there was a saying that I read in a book, and it says, when members of a church are fighting each other, Satan stands on the sidelines and gives ammunition to both sides. <laughs> you know, have you ever seen that happen? Oh, I know it doesn't happen here at Grace, right? But I know it happens in other churches, all right? And so, you know, these kinds of things happen. And so churches can defeat themselves. Uh, just because we are working with fellow Christians on a project for God, we, sh- uh, we should not automatically expect everything to go perfectly and smoothly. Uh, any child of God can be a part of the problem or they can be part of the solution. They can tear down or they can build up. It's really a choice that believers need to make as they are part of the community of uh, believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, one uh, very prominent pastor said one time from the pulpit, where there are people, there are problems. Where there are people, there are problems. You're a people, you're a people, you're a people, I'm a people. So there's probably going to be problems somewhere along the way. And so we have to be alert and we have to be ready when things arise. God's people need to know how to handle problems when they arise, especially when they arise internally. God's people have to know how to overcome problems uh, between themselves. If these problems are ignored, there's a real danger that God's work can grind to a stop as God's people become more divided, distracted, discouraged, and destructive. And so I've seen this happen. I've seen this happen. I've been, uh, unfortunately, part of things like this. And they are not pretty. They are not pretty. And so please, 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 church, GBC, family, please come together and be sure to be alert and handle problems as they arise internally. So this is why the book of Nehemiah is so important to us. And we have been in a series of messages. And I do hope with all my heart, I pray fervently that these have spoken to your heart about current issues and things that may be going on in your life. And so let's go back to the book of Nehemiah and let's see how we can deal with internal problems. Now, there are Many new people here today, and I'm so glad you're here. And I just want to do a quick review uh, if you're joining us for the first time in the Old Testament of the book of Nehemiah. In chapters 1 to 3, basically, Nehemiah is led by God to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and revive God's people spiritually. And that's why this book of Nehemiah is so important. It's not primarily about a building program. It's about the revival of God's people, you see. But God does things in stages. He does things in steps. And he uses the rebuilding of the wall to help them rebuild their spiritual identity. In chapter 4, he overcomes the enemy's first attacks, first strike, if you will. This is the enemy using tactics such as ridicule, threats, and discouragement. And he throws them at God's people. He wants to derail them. He wants to stop the work. He wants to do everything possible to disrupt the rebuilding of the wall. And so Nehemiah wisely overcomes this with prayer, perseverance, and prudent preparations. And so we thank God for people like Nehemiah. And there are people like Nehemiah in every congregation. Those who see it for what it is, and they step up and they deal with these things. And that's what Nehemiah did. And God's people need to be alert and rise up when called upon. In chapter 5 now, the enemy tries to disrupt the work using internal conflicts. He changes his tactics. He says, I couldn't fool them. 
I couldn't discourage them with all of my threats and things, so I've got another plan. This is another way that he attacks, and he attacks from within. And, and what was the attack? Some of the Jewish brothers were taking advantage of other Jews for profit. And so this became a serious problem very quickly and needed to be dealt with. And so until this is settled, God's work could not go on. And so somebody had to do something about it, and God's hand was upon Nehemiah. Now, please understand that dealing with outsiders is one thing, and dealing with insiders is quite another. All right? It's much more difficult. And so, please, understand this is the tactic and this is the attack that the enemy was going to use. So, let's join Nehemiah in chapter 5 and let's see how he handles this delicate and dangerous situation. Now, the story, the narrative can easily be broken down into three parts. Okay? Three parts. And from it, we can draw lessons. And the first part, section is the people's outcry. This is found in verses 1 through 5. It says, now there was a great outcry of the people, of their wives against, um, and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we, our sons, our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Verse 3, there were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses, that we might get grain because of the famine. Verse 4. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5, now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So what is happening? How can we summarize this? We can summarize it this way. There were too many people and too little food in verse 2. All right. They cra- the, the people were now amassing into Jerusalem. They were coming together. But there was not enough food. There were too many people. There was too little money forcing people to mortgage their fields and their homes in verse 3. In verse 4, there were too many loans in order to pay taxes, in order to pay the taxes. And then in verse 5, there are too many sons and daughters forced into servitude because of the loans. So times were really hard. Times were really hard. And you ask yourself, you know, why, why would God permit this to happen? You know, why would God permit this to happen? Well, part of it is because whenever there is a project for God, there will always be a test. There will always be a time when we are tested personally. In what way? We are perhaps sometimes our patience is tested. Okay, sometimes things just go on and on and on, and we ask ourselves, when is this going to end? You know, when are we going to get this thing done? Sometimes our patience is tested, but oftentimes projects for God have a way of surfacing our priorities. Our priorities. How does that play out here? See. Sometimes we underestimate how strong the profit motive is in people, all right? And we're Asians, okay? We're Asians. Profit is a part of our DNA, okay? Everything we look at, we somehow find a profit, all right? And sometimes we think to ourselves, well, we're Christians, we're God's people. That shouldn't be the case. But guess what? This project surfaced up an opportunity for a group of people to gain a profit, off the misery and the pain of other people. You see? How did it surface? 
because of the building program, because of the of the what God was doing, you see. And so when you and I think that because we're doing it for God, this thing, there should be no problems. Everything should go smooth. Uh Uh-uh. What God is doing alongside is that he is testing us. He is trying to show us what are our priorities? What is important to us? Will we be willing to sacrifice? Will we be willing to take this step? Will we be willing to do that step? Will we trust God? So on and so forth, you see. And so the program that or project that God has for us has more than what? One purpose. And it has more than one consequence. And one of the consequences is to test our priorities. And that's what was what was being tested here. Because God's people definitely, definitely felt that the shekel was much more important than the welfare of the fellow brother in Christ. You see? And that became very apparent very quickly in a very horrific way. And so this is what happened here. So times were very hard. They were very harsh for God's people. Now, the second part of this story is found in verses 6 through 13. And this was Nehemiah's outrage. He was angered by the ungodly behavior, but he also did something about it. Look at verse 6, and it says there in chapter 5, verse 6, Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. And this anger that he had was not... um, uh, it, it was righteous indignation. It was, how can p- people of God possibly treat other people of God in this way? I would surely understand this if our enemies on the outside, the Samaritans, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, and all them, if they treated us this way, and they do, I can understand that. But this is my brother. <laughs> this is my sister in the Lord. How can you possibly treat me this way? And so there was a righteous anger that Nehemiah had. So what did he do? You look at the first part of verse 7. Um, you look at verse 7, and it says that, I consulted with myself and contended with nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Verse 7 is very important here because it shows what he did. The first thing he did was he consulted with himself. Now, I looked at that and I said, that's a funny way of saying it. That's a real, what did he do? Did he go look in the mirror and start looking at himself and kind of, what do you think I ought to do? Well, I don't know. I think you, you know, did he, he consulted with him. But the meaning of it becomes a little clearer when the literal translation is used and it means my heart consulted within me. And what that means was that part of the time that he spent consulting himself was dealing with his feelings. He was dealing with his feelings. Another way of looking at this is Nehemiah got his heart and head under control. He has his heart and his head under control. He got his feelings and his thoughts under control. Nehemiah was very deliberate, and he figured out what he would do and what he would say. God's people have to be in control rather than out of control. But that's what happens sometimes in internal uh, difficulties among the brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't respond, we react. Okay, you know the difference? You don't respond, you react. Okay, 
And so you say the first thing off the top of your head. You say the first thing that comes up in your heart. You always do this. You always, you're always like that, you know, so on and so forth. And then our finger gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, as the list goes on, you see. And so Nehemiah was quite different. He consulted with himself. He got his heart and his head under control, okay? So he was thinking very carefully. Then the scripture says in verse 7 that he contended with the offenders, okay? But you have to look very carefully at this, and you have to ask yourself, who was it that he was contending? Who was he going up against? And verse 7 says it was the nobles and the rulers, okay? These people were the prominent and the powerful. These were the rich and resourceful. These were the movers and shakers of Jerusalem, all right? So he had to be very careful because no matter what we say, he needed their help in order to rebuild the country, to rebuild the walls. And so he had to use a lot of wisdom here. And so he went up against them anyway. And then he was very specific about the charges, their violation of God's law. And he says, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. You are charging interest. And you are not just charging reasonable interest. You're charging exorbitant interest. And so what happens is the people are having to default and they're having to give up their homes and their fields and their vineyards to you. And they must have been reaping the profits. Like, all get out. And so what happens is that this was a terrible miscarriage of justice that was going on. The charges were clear. And and we don't have time to read it, but if you do later on, you can go to Exodus chapter 22, Leviticus chapter 25, and Deuteronomy verse 24. It's not out of God's will to lend money to people, but it is out of God's will to lend it at interest, okay? Now, this means to people who are of the same community, all right? And so God wanted the Jewish people to help one another, and he says, I'll help you out in your time of need, but I'm not going to charge you any interest. I'm not going to make a profit off of your misery. That was God's ideal. And so this is what happened here. Now, the next thing that he did is quite astonishing. I I was quite amazed. I had to look at that over and over again. And this was found in verses 8 through 13. He called a public assembly to resolve the problem. Look at verse 8 here. And it says, I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that you may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Verse 9, again I said, the things which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Verse 10, and likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off the usury or the interest. Verse 11, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, a hundredth part of the money of the grain and of the grain and the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them and they would do according to this promise. I also shook out 
from the front of my garment and said, may, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. And so when you look at this, what happened? He appealed to them. He appealed to these people. Now, what's amazing about this is Nehemiah never read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6. Do you know what that verse says? That verse says, let your speech be seasoned with grace. Here he was, the governor. He was the representative of the king. He had every right and authority to go up and really give it to these guys if he wanted to. But notice here, he appealed to them. He appealed to the fact that God had redeemed his people. He had saved his people. How? Because God has saved his people. How could you do this and commit people into slavery and bondage? This is not right. And then he says, follow our example. He said, fear God in verse 9. He says, wake up, folks. Fear God, not man. And he says, fear God, respect God, obey God. And then in verse 10, he says, follow our example. He says, look, we've been here so many days and so many weeks. We have not taken one thing from people. People who've needed money, we've lent it to them so that they can get through this horrible time. And then he goes back and gets very specific in verse 11. He says, give back the properties and the homes to the people and make restitution. And then he says in verse 12 through 13, he says, make your vow official. And then in verse 12, it tells us that the lenders took it very seriously. They said, yes, we will do this. And Nehemiah took it seriously with a declaration of judgment if the oath is broken. That's what the shaking of the garment was all about. It was a Jewish way of saying that if, if it, either party does not fulfill its part, then may it be just like this, that God's judgment would come upon them. They took it seriously. The lenders took it seriously. Nehemiah took it seriously. And then the people took it seriously when they said, Amen. You know, when Jewish people, when the congregation would say, Amen, it was taken as something very serious. It was an agreement. It says, we are in this. We buy in. We are in total agreement with this. So saying amen was just not a simple amen, you know, but it was really meaningful. All three parties were engaged in this contract before the Lord. That's what happened. And the people were rejoiced over that. When properly done, issues among the brethren can be resolved. Now, why is it or how is it that Nehemiah could play such a successful role in this very delicate situation. How is it? Well, the scripture goes on. It could have stopped at, at that last verse that we read. But the scripture goes on and it tells us why Nehemiah was so successful. If you look at this very carefully in verses 14 to 19, you know that Nehemiah's outlook, his, the way he looked at things, was singular. It was very focused. It was a commitment to please God. One way I look at this is that Nehemiah did not live as he could, but as he should. He didn't live as he could, but he lived as he should. Okay, do you get the difference between the two? Many of us here in this room could live a very different lifestyle. We could. 
Okay? But we choose to live as we should. And that was Nehemiah. That was Nehemiah. Well, why did he live as he should? In the verses 14 through 15, it's because he feared God. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor of the land of Judah, from the 20th year of the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine and besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because why? I feared the Lord. He feared God. You see, he didn't take the privileges that he was entitled to as others had done before him. He didn't take all of the privileges because in verse 15 says he feared God. And not only this, but the scripture tells us that it was him and his cohort. Look at verse 16. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. They were there to do the job. They were not there to to thicken their own wallets or purses, so to speak. Okay, and they knew that and they practiced that. They didn't live as they could. They lived as they should because they feared God. The second reason is given to us in verse 17 through 18. Because he did not want to burden the people. In verses 17 through 18. Moreover, there were, my ta- there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for for each day was one ox and six cho- choice sheep, also birds that were prepared for me. And once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Can you imagine that? It's like having Chinese New Year reunion dinner every night. <laughs> you know, and he says, I did not bill it to the people. Because that's who eventually had to pay for it. He said, I did not bill it for the people. I did it out of my own pocket, he says. So he didn't, he feared God more than he feared anybody else. He did not want to burden the people. And then in verse 19, he lived as as he should because he only wanted to please God. Look at verse 19. Remember me, oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done. For this people. All he wanted was God's pleasure. He just wanted God's approval. He wanted God's reward. That was all. Just Lord. If you happen to remember me. At the right time. Remember me. For the good that I've done for the people. That's all. You see. And so. This is why. Nehemiah's outlook. Was given to us. In verse 14 through 19. Why was Nehemiah so successful in mediating all of this? It was because of these three things. He feared God. He didn't want to burden the people. And he only wanted to please God. That's all he wanted. That's what made him such a special person. And that's what can make every believer in this room, you and you and you and you and me, can make all of us different if you and I are willing to operate by these principles. Well... What lessons can we learn from all this, okay? How does one handle internal strife and hindrances? Number one, God's people must confront 
the sources of the problems. And I won't read the verses over again, but they're found in verses 6 through 13. The Jews were charging their brothers interest and, and taking their children into slavery to cover the debts. And this was clearly a violation of God's law. When God's word is clearly violated, God's people must stand up, speak out against such things. Violators must be held accountable for their ungodly actions. Now, you say to yourself, how does that work in the church setting? I mean, I haven't heard of anybody selling anybody here into slavery, you know, to cover a debt. That's pretty far-fetched, okay? No, but in churches, we do have our moments. <laughs> and so if you turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, it says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, you see. And so these things can come between people. Especially the strife and the jealousies and the outbursts of anger. These things can happen inside a church. And so it's not so far-fetched that churches can be pits of problems. They can be, okay? And so we ought to remember that and be careful about that. And so when we, when we look at this situation, there may become a time when you or I are called upon to address these issues, okay, that we will be called upon to address these issues. And so, but how are we going to do it? Well, we take a page from the playbook of Nehemiah. First, we consult, we reflect on the matter. Know what you are going to say, why you're saying it, and how you're going to say it, okay? You know, think before you speak, okay? Reflect before you speak. Go to pray before you speak, Okay, and so this becomes something I think that would be very helpful for all of us if we're going to, especially inside the body of Christ. Okay, I come from the land where it's, you know, spit it out, spit it out. I don't want you, you don't want people spitting at you. Okay, I was was puzzled by that. You know, spit it out, spit it out, you know, get it off your chest. You know, I don't want people spitting at me. All right. I'd rather that people speak to me. All right. And so consult. Get your heart and get your brain and gear, okay, before you speak. What's the other thing? Confront. But do it in the biblical way. Do it in the biblical way. Galatians chapter 1 helps us with this. And it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted, it says. Did you ever notice that in verses 10 and 11 that Nehemiah said, please? He said, please. He used the word please. He said, please don't do this. Please, let's get rid of the user, you know, stuff like that. He was a real gentleman, okay? And so it has its way. It has its way of he was gentle yet firm. And then confront in the spirit of God with the word of God in the way of God, Okay. Now, I'm going to run through some very some verses very quickly. Just write down the verse, okay? Just write down the verse. We're going to go through these very quickly. And I think these verses are very important because in my experience with working with people on both sides of the ocean here, both sides of, of the pond, so to speak, is that if we're not careful how we speak, the people we are speaking to will go into an emotional lockdown, 
Some of them will even go into emotional meltdown, okay? Lockdown. Emotional lockdown is when they're looking at you, but they're not listening to you. Like some of you right now. No, I'm just kidding, okay? You see? And so some people are just totally disinterested, you know? And they, they, you're sitting there and you're shooting flames out of your mouth. And they're just sitting there. You know, unemotional, unattached, undeterred, unconcerned, unattentive. They couldn't give a, anything about what you're saying. All right? Emotional lockdown. Then other people go through emotional meltdown. And then the emotional meltdown, they just lose it. They just lose it. <laughs> And they're just totally a basket case. And very frankly speaking, I think sometimes the way we deal with one another in the body of Christ is not very kind. And if I'm really honest with you, and I try to be, I really do, in my own very diplomatic way, some of us are looking for the meltdown. We are looking for the meltdown. And so we keep on, we keep on, and we keep on until we get it, you see. And that is not very helpful. So what does the Bible say? James chapter 1, verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Wow. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. To, the, to God, the words we use are very, very important. After over 30 plus years in churches, I've met many brothers and sisters in Christ who are brokenhearted and bitter. Supposedly well-meaning members of God's family have used harsh and brutal language to hurt and devour them. And they have a tough time coming back. They have a tough time coming back. No, I know, I know, I know. The first thing on your mind, they deserved it. It's the only way you can get through to people. Some people. Some people, perhaps. But by and large, I have found that people respond more positively to the principles given in God's word. And I think this is a message for the church today, the message of, to Grace Baptist Church and to any other church here in Singapore or in the United States or anywhere else around the world is that we ought to go back to the Word of God and we ought to take up these principles when we confront. The second thing is God's people must be committed to pleasing God. This is from verse 19. 
Above all else, God's people must have a singular goal of loving and pleasing God. If one seeks to please themselves or the world, they will forever be in conflict with God. <laughs> There's just no way around it. <laughs> There's just no way around it. Nehemiah feared God. This was found in verse 15. And because of that, there was no bad behavior that was too big that he couldn't tackle. He was not afraid. He w- there was no group too powerful to not confront. There was no sacrifice too great to not make. <laughs> you see? You know, we constantly look at people like Nehemiah and others. We say, oh, wow. You know, I wish I could be like Nehemiah. But when you take it apart, Nehemiah operated by some basic principles. His basic principles, I fear God more than men. I found this quote by Oswald Chambers. Okay, and he, he was a great Christian writer. And he said this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas... If you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Is that true? You bet it is. You bet it is. You see? And so he speaks rightly. How does this fear of God work? Okay? I'm going to tell you a story. All right? Let me just take a little time. When we broke the word to our family that we were moving to Singapore, they said, Singapore. <laughs> what part of China is that? <laughs> you know, where is Singapore? Okay, and so we were in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we were with our our number four daughter, and we were with her uh, three sons, and we were there. And so the oldest son, he was about at that time about seven years old, and he came to us, and he he goes up to Effie, and he said, "Papa, why do you have to go to Singapore?" And Effie looks at him, and she says, "Well." There's people in Singapore that need to hear about Jesus. And so in his innocence, the, my little grandson looks at Papa and says, Well, Papa, there's people here in Tulsa who need to hear about Jesus too. You know? And so, uh, you know, Effie was really stuck. What do I say now? You know? And so Effie, God's wisdom came upon her and, and she turns to him. She says, Do you remember the story of Jonah? You know, and and how God told him to go to Nineveh, but he didn't go, and God caused a big fish to swallow him up. You know, and our grandson thought for a minute. He says, oh, you better go to Singapore. I don't want God to swallow you up with a fish. fish." You see, sometimes we have to do what God wants us to do because we fear God more than anything else. You see? Now we're fearful that, you know, God's going to hit us upside the head or God's going to do some horrible thing to us. But we do it. The word fear means actually reverence. It means deep respect for God. And I think God's people need to have a deep respect for God. We have our opinions. We have our gifts. We have our achievements. We have our accumulations. And we have all of those things. But do we fear God more than anything else? Nehemiah wanted to please God. And that's what we ought to want to do. In God's work, internal conflicts between God's people can arise, and they do. If not addressed, these conflicts can disrupt, distract, and even destroy God's work and God's people. 
So God's people have to be ready to take action. They must confront and stay committed to pleasing God. I'll leave you with this. Stay committed to pleasing God. And prayerfully, the enemy will not be the one we see in the mirror. We don't want to defeat ourselves. We don't want to defeat ourselves as a church. We don't want to deceive ourselves as a family. We don't want to defeat ourselves as an individual Christian who lives for God. But we can if we're not careful. Let's pray. Father, as we come together, we know we're not perfect. We know, O Lord, that we have our faults and we fail. But Lord, by your grace, we can do better each day and each opportunity. Father, may we follow you. May that singular thought of pleasing you be foremost in our minds. May we fear you. May we reverence and respect you above all else. We thank you, dear Lord, again for Nehemiah. He shows us the way. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.